Amen. You could be seated. Welcome uh, to the Branch Church. I hope that's where you meant to end up. My name is Doug Payne. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, happy Father's Day to all you fathers. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you're if you're if you're new here, we would love to get to know you afterwards. Um, if, if you if you want to give us your name uh, on a connect card, you can go to the branchboard.org, or you can fill one out at the at the welcome desk. Uh, so just welcome. Good to see all of you. Some new faces uh, in the room, and some uh, I've known for a little while. Uh, we have a, a gift. Um, no, it's not just for fathers, but it's uh, for all men. It's called Gospel Meditations for Men. <laughs> and uh, there's a box of them out there. If you would like, uh, if you'd like to just pick one out, um, there are 31 gospel meditations. Uh, so you can, you can take a, a month with 31 days in it and go through it. Uh, it's, it's gospel saturated. It'll help you through your days be thinking about um, what the gospel is and how to apply it to life. Okay. Um, let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you having sung our songs of deliverance. Father, it is true that it was our sins, sins committed last week, even this morning, sins that we don't even know about. It was our sins that nailed you there on the tree. It was because of our sins that you stayed it was because of our sins that uh, you suffered and died. And we praise you, our great Christ, that you are no longer dead, and therefore we pray to you that you are the God of the living. You did not stay in the tomb, but you rose from the dead. And Father, we, we want to be pondering these things. We, as we've sung, we want to ponder anew what the Almighty would do for us this morning. We know that you have given us life and breath in all things, and you have given us new life <clears throat> in Christ. Father, <clears throat> we ask that you would attend to us this morning. We thank you for the life that you've given us, the new life you've given us in Christ, and therefore we gather together to bring praises back to you. We pray that you would receive those praises. Tune our hearts to sing your praise, we pray. God, we ask that as we open the scriptures to behold your beauty, that you would help us to behold Jesus Christ the way you want us to see him. He did not come to make us happy with ourselves. He came to make us happy with you the Father. And his work is complete. Father, we, we want to see him. So please, open up our hearts and our minds to, to see Jesus Christ, to behold him, and to give him worship that he deserves. We pray that you would draw our hearts to you through your love, that you'd give us more faith, that you would help us to repent of our sins and believe in you, even this morning. We've come again, and, and Father, we needed to be reminded. We need to be reminded again and again of your love for us. We forget. We forgot this week. We pursued other things. We try to fill our, 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 our pockets and our, our bags with, with things that won't satisfy. 
And we need to be reminded of your love, the love that sent Jesus Christ to the cross and died for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. So fill our hearts with your love, with your praise. And we pray that you not just do this for us, you would do this for the friends and uh, the churches that we've partnered with in the past. We pray for Redeemer Church in Bellevue, the, the church that my family came from to, to pastor here. We pray that you would bless Redeemer Church in Bellevue, Washington, that they would be, they would be a, a, a pillar and ground of truth for the gospel to go out in, in that area, an area that's very wealthy and dependent on its own intellect and, and tech money and, and all of these other things. Would Jesus Christ be praised there? Would, would our friends in Redmond, Bellevue, Kirkland be, be shown that money's not enough? Success is not enough to satisfy them. Only Jesus is. God, we pray too for our dear friends at Gresham Bible Church and for Josh Howith. We, God, we, we thank you for the ministry that he had here and the ministry he's having there. We pray that you'd give them great success today in preaching the gospel and and. Comfort them with your love, we pray. We pray with all the transitions that they're having, that you would give them much grace, that they would be unified in your love, that they'd be unified in the gospel as they proclaim it to one another and to their city. And God, we pray for the churches we partner with here in Corvallis. We thank you that we're not the only gospel witness here, that we have other brothers and sisters and other churches here in Corvallis that are proclaiming your name. We pray for Northwest Hills and Josh Carstensen. God, may the gospel go out from there. We pray for Westminster Press and, 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 and Charles Williams and, and, the, and that dear congregation there, that you would indeed unite them and make them a loving place that proclaims the gospel with much boldness and grace. We pray that many people would come to know you out of, out of their gospel proclamation. And while you are meeting with these friends and dear gospel partners. You would not pass over us. Please meet with us, O oh God, as you have already met with us through the reading of your word, through the singing of the gospel. We pray now through the preaching of your word, you would be pleased. And you would move into our hearts in, in ways that would change us to reflect your glory. As a church, as people in neighborhoods who are just trying to make disciples and tell people about Jesus. Would you help us to do that? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer and the king who died on a cross for our sins. Amen. So we're in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and... Uh, I don't know how many sermons this is, but we're nearing the end. After today is only two, two more uh, sermons in the Gospel of Mark. And so now we've come to the sort of the climax of the book, the climax of, the, of, of history. Now in our text this morning, Mark chapter 15. Um, again, if you just came in, happy Father's Day. Uh, I hope it's a great day for you. Uh, this Father's Day, I received a flooring project. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a good one. Uh, I'm, I'm not a handy man, uh, 
though my name and that uh, moniker should not be in the same sentence, Doug and Handyman. Uh, but I do get to do, I, do, I have done for the last several days demoing, and that's been fun. I've enjoyed like breaking up 20-year-old particle board with a crowbar. That's been a blast. Um, that was supposed to be funny, but uh, it hasn't, my hands have not thought it was funny. It, my hands are bruised. Um, so I have some advice for anyone doing a, a home flooring project. Don't call me. <laughs> Just kidding. No, you could call me. I'll be happy to advise you on anything but, uh, and, and happy to help in any way. Just give my body a year to recover, please. Please do. But, you know, as we're doing the flooring project, one of the thoughts that gets me through the project is how beautiful the floor is going to look. You know, 20-year-old carpet that has who knows what on it and under it is going to be replaced with some nice-looking vinyl floor. And, and it is that, you know, this sort of the end in mind, that, that mission that we have to, to improve the value of our home and, and make the aesthetic a little nicer that is, has gotten me through a little bit. It's, it's, it's seeing that the mission has a purpose, right? The mission has a purpose. My mission, though it has bruised hands, stepping on nails, quite literally, while I was at the dump, 20 trips to Home Depot, it'll all be worth it when it is finished, and in a much greater way, the death of Jesus, the Son of God, accomplished a much greater mission. It accomplished his mission for the world. That's going to be, the, I think, the main point of this passage is the death of God's Son reveals God's mission for the world. What's it all been about? What's Mark been telling us about in in, in this book, as we've seen Jesus' life, uh, as he, we saw his baptism and his healings and his miracles, all of them have been leading somewhere to this day. And if I'm right, if, if Christians have been right, that this is the climax of history, this is the climax of the narrative, the death of God's Son, what does it reveal about his mission for the world? Those are just going to be the two points, the, the death of God's Son and the mission for the world, the death of God's Son, verses 21 through 37, and God's mission for the world, verses 38 through 41. My first point is going to be the longest, so I'm going to still be on my first point for a while, and you're going to be like, is the sermon ever going to be over? It will be, so first point will be the longest. So the death of God's Son. Let's read Holy Scripture. It says in verse 21, and they compelled a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. <coughs> and they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, <coughs> wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy 
the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Elo, lemma sabachthani, which means God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. So Jesus' death on the cross. How how does Mark's recounting Jesus' death reveal his mission? Well, that's what we're going to look at. And it shows his mission, Jesus' death on the cross shows his mission through the drama of crucifixion. And the characters play a large role. You'll, you just notice that there wasn't much in terms of verbal action from Jesus or, or action at all or interaction with the characters. Jesus says few words in Mark's account. And the characters do a lot, at least on the surface. Mark only records one of Jesus' sayings on the cross. There's seven, and Mark gives us one He also tells us Jesus sighs and he dies. God the Father is silent. He does not speak. So the character's role says something about what's going on in this scene. And yet all of it, all of what the characters do, the religious, the, the, the passers-by, the thieves on the cross, they all point to the main character who is the suffering, silent servant, Jesus the Christ who laid his life down as a ransom for many. So I hope, friend, I don't know who you are. I don't don't know what you believe about Jesus, but my hope for you is that you see what Jesus' mission is and who it is for, that you might find yourself in one of the characters. And once you find yourself in one of the characters, you would see Jesus as the answer. He will lead you to the place of, of, of faith in him. So the death of the Son of God through 
crucifixion unfolds for us several themes that Mark has been has been sort of weaving together and now and now the author picks them up all at the end and like you know like a like a quilt he's putting them all together all the patches to the quilt and it's about to make sense and and in the cru- crucifixion we see these three themes that Mark is pulling together the first theme that the death of the son of god through crucifixion shows us is that it illustrates discipleship it illustrates discipleship. You notice in verse 21, they compelled a passerby named Simon to carry Jesus across for him. Jesus had been beaten. Uh, he had been beaten in such a way that he was weak, uh, not even able to carry his cross to the place where he would be crucified. And, and the text says the Roman guards compelled Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Rufus, Alexander and Rufus. And Simon for us demonstrates what discipleship is simon was uh you know he it says he was uh, the father of alexander rufus he was a, a diaspora jew he was a jew living outside of israel most likely and uh he's making his way in for the passover and uh and mark mark tells us that his two sons why is he named his two sons no one else names the two sons uh well Probably because Alexander and Rufus were known to the church at Rome. You remember that Mark was, was writing the, uh, this gospel to a specific people, most likely the church uh, in Rome. The church Mark was writing to, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 16, he names in the greetings, he says, greet this man named Rufus. <clears throat> what, what's the reason he names him? Probably we can't be certain about this, but probably these men could attest to their dad's cross-bearing for Jesus as true. Any of the Roman Christians who would want him to know? It is likely that most scholars think that this Rufus mentioned in Mark 16 is actually the Rufus that Paul was talking about. No, though we can't be certain, it certainly makes sense. And I think Mark includes it for a reason. What does cross-bearing have to do with discipleship? Well, Jesus said, if anyone is to come after me, in Mark 8, 34, if you are to come after me, if you're going to be a disciple, if, you, a disciple, if you're going to follow me, what must you do? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Those are Jesus' words to his disciples. You want to follow the rabbi? You want to follow the popular teacher? You want to follow the guy that can t- turn water into wine and, 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 and it can take, and make bread out of nothing? You, you want to follow that guy? You'll have to die. You'll have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Before us is a living illustration of it. We don't know that Simon was a follower of Jesus before this, but Mark takes up this cross scene as a, an illustration of discipleship. Being a follower of Jesus is about denying your autonomous identity. It's about dying to yourself that you might truly live. Well, I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what you, what has become your identity. But Jesus is saying whatever that is, it must die if you want to live. Is it your work? Is it your family? Is it your reputation? Is it your bank account? Is it your friend group? Is it your, is it your Instagram account? 
What is it? What has become your identity? Jesus is saying, deny that. Take up your cross and follow me. And while you're denying all those things, you are to affirm, I'm created in God's image. I'm owned by God and therefore valuable. But you must admit that you are a sinner who has rebelled against God. So Simon of Cyrene, Jewish person, probably in town for the festival, an onlooker of the spectacle of Jesus, he is, his identity now is cross-bearer in this story. He's the cross-bearer of Jesus. He was compelled by the Roman soldiers to take up the cross. But friend, you should be compelled by the grace of Jesus Christ to deny yourself. Take up your cross, the instrument of death for you. Take it up and follow Jesus. The death of God's son through crucifixion not only illustrates discipleship, it also fulfills scripture. It illustrates discipleship and fulfills scripture. And you notice as we read through verses 22 through 24, if you've been in the Bible at all, especially the Old Testament, some of that language may have seemed familiar to you. But throughout the book of Mark, we have, we have seen that Jesus, as the fulfillment of many scriptures, in passages like Isaiah, Elisha read for us this morning, the one who uh, bore our transgression, transgressions, who, 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 who took our iniquity, our stripes, our wounds. But in Mark 15, we see an Old Testament poem of Psalm 22 fulfilled in the death of God's Son. Simon carried Jesus' cross to Golgotha, and once there, they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, which Psalm 22 tells us would happen. And, and this wine mixed with myrrh was like a, a narcotic to help the prisoner through the crucifixion so that they could experience as much pain as possible, right? They could experience up until death as much pain. Jesus would not take it. He, you know, it was, he was like William Wallace who spits out the, the narcotic and, uh, he, because he, he wants to experience fully what, it, what it's like to, to suffer for freedom's sake. Freedom, you know? He wanted his, Jesus wanted his mind to be clear as he faced the most important task of all. The task of suffering for the sins of the world and for the glory of God. And in verse 24, Mark is sparse on the details of the crucifixion, just saying that Jesus was crucified. He doesn't go into detail, but here is what is meant in that word, crucifixion. They laid Jesus' bloody body on a rough, cut piece of wood. They hammered nails into his feet and hands. Then they stood the cross up and dropped it into a hole, jarring his whole body so that his, all of his joints might be out of place. Crucifixion was, was death by exhaustion and suffocation. And Romans typically crucified, they executed their criminals naked. And so they would tear the clothes off of the criminal and they would expose him to further ridicule. They would expose him to the elements and the, and the officers would gamble for the clothing. They would, get a, they would get a divide up the clothing of whatever criminal was there. And Mark tells us that they're dividing up the garments 
And they are unwittingly fulfilling an, that ancient Hebrew poem of Psalm 22 by King, the other king of Israel, David. And in this poem, David, the king of Israel, thousands, thousand years before, expresses deep sorrow for suffering that he is going through. We, we don't know exactly what suffering it was, but we know that David went through extreme suffering at times. Even the, the, uh, the expulsion from his throne by his own son. And as David writes this poem and the Holy Spirit inspires the words that David is saying, they're, they're true words about his own experience, but they're, they're figurative. They're, he's trying to give language to what he's going through. And, and he's, he's, giving, he, he's, he's giving words to the anguish that he's experiencing. And, and all the while, he's pointing to something greater, a greater scene of suffering, the scene of the crucifixion. David's suffering that inspired this poem has deeper meaning and significance than he even realized. God doesn't waste any of our pain, friends. I, I don't know what pain you have. Maybe it's something like David. Maybe there's betrayal in your life. Maybe there's, maybe there's a waiting that you've had to go through that has been excruciatingly painful. Maybe there's, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe it's even your own sin, and, and God has given words for you to speak in your suffering, words that his own son took up on the cross, praying the Psalms. And all of that suffering that David had, all of that suffering that you have, it points to a greater suffering that the Lord of glory had in your place. He knows your suffering like nobody else. He took the words that you can take on his own lips. In verse 18 of 22, says of David's suffering that it was like they were dividing his garments among them and for my clothes they were casting lots and Mark notices the parallel to Psalm 22 who the great king of Israel wrote and now the greater king of Israel is actually experiencing and fulfilling those scriptures friends being naked is the most vulnerable position someone can be in and it can be the most humiliating and his enemies are not only humiliating him, but they're dividing up his clothes. He'll never get them back. They're, they're gambling for them. And what was happening figuratively to David is happening literally to Jesus his, he, as he was exposed both body and soul. He was humiliated like no one else so that he might take your humiliation on himself. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The most humiliating part of your life and mine is that we are naked and exposed before God. There's nothing God does not know about you. The deepest, darkest secret that you have in your mind right now, that you've told nobody else, God knows. You are naked and exposed before him, friend. So am I. And he knows everything about us. 
and our sins. They're finally against him. They're finally sins against God Almighty. You're lying. You're cheating. You're stealing. Your meanness. Your hatred. They're all before him. And he has the right to expose you. But instead, he exposed his son. Left him naked on a tree. In your place. So that you might be forgiven. The one that knows us best loves us the most, Tim Keller said. He knows everything about you. Can you imagine that? And he loves you the most. The fulfillment of scripture teaches us that Jesus was exposed naked hanging on a tree for us because of his love for those who will turn and repent of their sins. Jesus' death not only illustrates discipleship, but it fulfills the scripture. The last thing, uh, the last thing is that it declares his person and work. It displays discipleship, it fulfills scripture, and it declares his person and work. The crucifixion declares his person and work through the ironic testimony of Jesus' enemies. Am I the only one that's hot in here, or what is going on? Okay, all right, all right. So just, uh, like, we'll get that out of the way. Uh, you can get a drink of water if you need to splash your face. I might take a drink of water, and feel, just feel free to do that. Uh, but it is, it is warm. I thought there was air conditioning. Okay. So, um, but Mark is dis- declaring Jesus' person and work through the ironic testimony of Jesus' enemies. When an enemy of Rome was crucified, it was customary to, to, to sort of uh, to write the charge on like a chalkboard and, and place it up on the up on the, the form of execution, the cross. And so they wrote it out there. Here's the formal charge. King of the Jews. He said he was king of the Jews. The high priest said, are you king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Yes, I'm the Messiah. Okay, he's king of the Jews. Let's take him to Rome. Rome said, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you said that about me. And it's ironically true. Though he was not intending to take over such a small kingdom like Rome, the charge was still true. He was the king of the Jews. He's the king of everyone and everything. And according to Rome, this was a seditious act. And he was to be treated like an insurrectionist, like a robber, like a bandit, like a, just like a common thief. But we should not pass over too quickly that Jesus was crucified between two bandits, two thieves. The New Bible, the, the, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery puts it this way. The picture of Jesus as a brigand, a lawbreaker, should not be quickly set aside. For Jesus dies as a lawbreaker. Jesus dies a lawbreaker's death on the cross, with two lawbreakers crucified on either side. And in all likelihood, these are, these are not common criminals, the, the dictionary says. They were thieves, but they were political revolutionaries. Their common enemy is Rome. And Jesus' enemy is Satan. Their strategy is physical violence and political upheaval. His is spiritual deliverance. And the mysterious invasion of the kingdom of God. Both Jesus and the bandits steal to rob Israel from their illegitimate grasp of a strong man. Rome was considered a strong man. But Jesus came to to rescue people from the greater strong man, Satan. He had been accused of, of doing miracles 
through Beelzebub. But Jesus says, no, no one can, no, the devil doesn't work that way. A house divided against itself cannot stand. But when I come to bind the strong man, he will, I will divide a portion among the many. And here he is, Jesus on the cross, binding the strong man. Through death, he delivers. And while he was not a robber like those he was crucified with, he was plundering the kingdom of darkness and taking back what belonged to him. He, he, was, he was going into enemy territory, and through his death, he would win freedom. He is binding the strong man. This is what Jesus says. This is, this is his person and work. He, Jesus is at work as king of the Jews. He gives up his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you're, if you're reading the ESV, uh, there's a footnote there explaining the absence of verse 28. I'm just, I'm just some, somebody in this congregation, I'm sure, noticed that, so I just had to draw attention to it. Um, some manuscripts have the verse saying, uh, verse 28 says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. So why does the ESV have it there? Well, many scholars believe that this was added later to show the fulfillment of scriptures. And what is written is not wrong. I mean, we, we said in one of our points that part of what was happening is Jesus was, this scene was a fulfillment of the scriptures. It is exactly right. So the question is whether Mark wrote it in the gospel or not. So it was found in a later manuscript, and, and some scholars think that you know, a scribe added that in there because he noticed what we're noticing. So well, why don't we just make it plain? Well, I think Mark, as the author, this is not quite the way he usually writes. So whether you think it should be there or not there, it's, it's okay. It's true. Uh, but, but Mark sort of leaves that for the reader to figure out for themselves, usually. But it is true. He was numbered with the transgressors. The scripture was fulfilled. He was numbered between these two robbers. And the next wave of punishment comes from the transgressors, the Sanhedrin, and the robbers. He's on the cross. He was the king of the Jews and dying in order to win back the people, his people. In the process, it says, the text tells us that he was derided and reviled. That just means he was, he was held in contempt and condemned. In verse, starting in verse 29, it shows us how ironically they're saying true things in a way that was meant to condemn Jesus. And those all kinds of people it was those passing by. So the crowd, remember the crowd who was enamored with him, who, who loved his miracles, who, who wanted to see more? The crowd is now passing by. The scribes and the chief priests, of course, they are there, right? They have to be there to see their enemy put to death. They're deriding him. And even the thieves on the cross. And those passing by, they see him and they say, you, you remember, you remember this accusation, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They say, save yourself and come down from the cross. And they did so, wagging their heads at him. And Psalm 22, 7 says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And while this was true of David in his day, 
the great King David, the greater King Jesus, has it done to him at his crucifixion. But it's true. The temple was being destroyed. Jesus was the temple. He was the place where all worship should come. He was the place where the nations should have come to worship the one true God. And in three days' time, that temple would be rebuilt when Jesus rose from the dead. And in his vindication, God made him, that's Jesus, <coughs> head of his body, the church in which he dwells. So if Jesus came down from the cross, if he saved himself and came down from the cross, he would not be able to rebuild the temple, his body, the church. And now it's not just people passing by. Now the religious hacks take their turn at him. And they ironically say the truth as well. He who saved others, he cannot save himself. Don't you just want to smack them? <laughs> Don't you just, Jesus would just be able to, just be able to like, God, I, I will stay on the cross, but if you could just zap them every time they mock me so they know who's in charge. I want that to happen, but Jesus doesn't do that. What they say is true of Jesus. If he chooses to save himself, though he could, he will not be able to save others. If he chooses to save his own skin, he will not be able to save others. He would not be able to fulfill his mission on earth, that is to give his life as a ransom for many. Though he was being crucified on a tree, he created. He was mocked and scorned by mouths that he formed. He will die with their foul words in his ears. For sinners just like them. Just like you and me. Verse 32, they go on. They say, let the Christ. Remember Jesus said, I am the Christ. They say, let the Christ. And now they change this. The king of Israel. You're the king. You're the Christ. Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Mocking him. Spitting on him. But it wasn't just the crowd and the religious who mocked him. It, even his fellow prisoners were reviling him. Everyone was against Jesus. And Peter tells us in his epistle to the churches that though he was reviled, he reviled not again. Silent as he stood accused. Beaten, mocked, and scorned. Bowing to the Father's will, he took the crown. Death came to him, started to come to him in verse 33. At the sixth hour or at noon, darkness covered the whole land. And it was the sign that judgment was falling. Darkness at the full light of day was an expression of God's judgment. It was the, the day of the Lord was at hand. And he was about to step into history and do something for his people. In your mind, go back to think of any other stories in the Bible where darkness came to land on judgment, in judgment. Well, if you've read the Old Testament at all, it should go back to the book of Exodus. This happened in this ancient story of Exodus that God was bringing his people 
<coughs> out of their slavery to Egypt. And in order to get Pharaoh to release the children of Israel, he was, he was blasting them with plague after plague. Do you remember this? That, that plague after plague, ten plagues in full. And in the ninth plague, God sends darkness on the land of Egypt in judgment. And darkness came on the land right before the tenth plague. Do you remember the ten, what the tenth plague was? It was the taking of the firstborn Egyptian boys. So before the death of the firstborn, darkness would come down as a sign of judgment, that God was entering into the situation and bringing judgment. And Amos 8 9 speaks of this very thing happening. It prof Amos prophesies of the great day of the Lord when he would come to judge his people. And he says, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Prophecy fulfilled. Darkness has descended on the earth, but instead of the people being judged, God himself was being judged. Friends, the darkness was descending on his son. And Jesus knows us and cries out with a loud voice of Psalm 22. In, in Mark 15, 34, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sebaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This so-called cry of dereliction has tried to be explained away in, in many ways. And we must be careful here. God does not separate from God. But in the God-man, Jesus the Son the man actually died and actually had the wrath of God poured on him, not only through the mocking and the scoring, not only through the crucifixion, but God's wrath for your sin and mine was poured on him. And God is too holy, too pure, too clean to even look on sin. He poured his wrath on the Son and the son actually died. The darkness of the son was just a representation of the death of the son. And he descended into the grave for you. At this moment, Jesus deals with the full reckoning of the sin of his people. God has poured out his full wrath on the son. And the son has taken his last breath. And while other gospels tell us Jesus cries, it is finished, Mark chooses to show us how it is finished. What are the results of it being finished? And this, my friends, our last point will go quickly. He shows us it is finished by revealing God's mission in the world. Look at what his death accomplished. It might not seem like much to you, but something incredible has happened. When Jesus died, he completed his work. And Mark says the curtain was torn in the temple from top to bottom. This is graphic language he uses. It's, it's, it's used 
elsewhere in the Old Testament is God rends the heavens and comes down in judgment and deliverance. It was used at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open. And what happened? The Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And the Father spoke. And the whole Trinity there at his baptism at once. And the Father says, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And why is he well pleased with the Son? Because the Spirit-empowered, faith-filled Son of God came to do the will of God. It was the will of God to crush him, to put him to grief, to make his soul an offering for guilt. And after he does that, the Scripture says, he will see his offspring. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And what do we see after the curtain is torn is the expression of a Roman centurion saying, truly, this is the Son of God. Friends, God's mission in the world is to bring glory to himself, Jesus doing his will, by bringing a people to himself. That's part of Jesus' will. That's part of God's will. That's part of the Spirit's will. This has always been the plan. He said to Abraham in Genesis 12, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how is that going to happen? You read through all the stories of the Old Testament into the New Testament. It is fulfilled in Jesus, and now is the time. The curtain is torn. There is access to God. So, just a little explanation. The curtain in the temple was a reminder that this promise had not been fully realized. It was, there was still separation between man and God. There were two curtains in there. One separating man and God, one separating the nations from Israel. There were courts all around separating different kinds of people. There was separation of man and God. There was separation of male and female. There was separation of Jew and Gentile. The Two curtains in the temple, one separated the nations from the Jewish people, converted those converted to Judaism and the, the natural-born Jews. The other was the temple that separated man from the presence of God, called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur. And only after he had made a sacrifice for his own sin and the sin of the people. We think it was this curtain that was torn. Letting people, sinners, sinners like you and me, into the presence of God, mediated by Jesus Christ. All people, not only Jewish people, but the nations were now able to come in. And we see evidence of this. It's true based on the very next scene that Mark reports in verse 39. One could hope that the next verse was about Peter, right? One could hope that the next verse was about the Sanhedrin or a political leader. But as soon as the veil is torn, who do we read about? In whose mouth is the good confession? It is a Roman soldier. 
a Gentile. Jews would have called him a Gentile dog. And worse than that, he was a soldier of Rome who was occupying the land of God's chosen people. And he was an officer that oversaw execution after execution, but he never saw anything like this. He looked at Jesus as he died, and he saw the Son of God. He not only sees, but he believes and confesses. The Roman Churian's confession was what the book of Mark was all about. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 1? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And like a good author, he's wrapping it all up. He's bringing all of the things together. He's, he's bringing it all together. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is now not just on his disciples' lips. It is on the lips of the worst kind of people. Just think of the reversal that's happening right now. Not only is man allowed into the presence of God, but Romans were allowed in the presence of God. Mark is telling his readers in, in, in the Roman church that one of the first people to believe on him was a Roman centurion. How comforting that must have been. But he was not the only unlikely character in this bunch, which reveals us more and more of God's mission to bring people to himself. Jesus also mentions a group of women in verses 40 through 41. Mary Magdalene and, and Mary uh, and many other women. Women were not thought very much of in the first century. But here they are in in, in Mark's eyewitness account, uh, the gospel, they're attesting to Jesus' death. They are witnesses to his death. Their, their witness wouldn't have even held up in a Jewish court. So why would Mark do this? Because it was true. And because all people are valued in his sight. Peter and the other disciples are nowhere to be found. But Mary Magdalene and Jesus' mother and many other women were there. They're treated with scorn themselves. They saw the one who was scorned for them. Though they were victims of mistreatment, they were also sinners in need of a Savior. So, very unlikely characters like a Roman centurion and women became followers of Jesus. But Mark also mentions this, this Jewish man, Simon, who is, who is from another place. It looks like he probably became a Christian. Even, but Mark doesn't tell us this, but even one of the thieves on the cross who reviled him was converted on the spot. God changed his heart in the midst of his reviling. Jesus did not revile again, but changed his heart by his spirit. And he said, this very day you would be with me in paradise. A Roman centurion, a bunch of women, a, 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 a Jewish man named Simon, a thief on the cross. Friends, he not only died for these people, he was willing to give himself up, regardless of their status, their ethnicity, their gender, but even their sin. He died, lastly, for religious hypocrites as well. He died for people like the people that wagged their heads at him and taunted him. 
He died for people like the Sanhedrin who mocked him. He died for people like us. Friends, if, if you're as bad as the Roman centurion, if you're as mistreated as the women, or even if you're a religious hypocrite who uses relig- religion to hound people, all the while yourself being a sinner, he died for people like you. There is a man named Saul of Tarsus who was thought of to be part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He didn't become a Christian at Jesus' death, but while on his way to put Christians to death, God showed up in Jesus Christ and struck him down in a blinding, in a blinding light and saved his soul. You can read about it in Acts 9. There is no one out of God's reach. And this is his mission, to open the eyes of sinners and to put the good confession in their mouth that truly he is the Son of God. The chief priests and scribes said that if he came down from the cross, they would see and believe. But because he stayed on the cross, the Roman soldier saw and believed. Friends, this is God's mission for the world. But now, friends, the scene will come through the ear. If you confess, Paul says, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Friends, God's mission is to make himself known to people who have not heard so that they might glorify him in their praise of him that he is the son of God. So what's that mean for us? Friends, it's time to be on mission. It's time to be on God's mission. The nations will glorify him by confessing him. They will come in from all over the place. And at the last day, we see in Revelation that from every tribe, tongue, and nation, there will be people there praising God. And the means he wants to use for that to happen is for you to open your mouth about the gospel and tell them that Jesus died for their sins. And if they'll repent, they can be reconciled to God. That's our mission. That's the mission of this church. To make disciples of all nations. To make disciples of all nations, friends, who are in awe of the gospel, who embody the gospel and give their lives away for the gospel. It's because of this this Jesus. It's time to be on mission. Christians, it's time for thanksgiving. If you haven't today, you should think about your own sins and thank God that Jesus took them for you. It's time for Thanksgiving and humility. We live as forgiven people. We live as beggars who have found bread, just taking it to other beggars. And friends, it's, it's Christian friend. It's time to persevere. It's time to persevere. His mission involves your continued salvation. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 
The way he does that is coming back to the gospel over and over again and applying it to your life. Persevere. Friends, the death of God's son reveals God's mission for the world. That's to bring glory to himself by having the good confession on people's lips, all kinds of people. Let's be about his mission. The one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Like this sermon, our flooring project is nearly complete. And I can't wait, just like you can't wait to get out of this hot uh, congregational setting. It will bring us a lot of joy and uh, the fruit of our labors, but I just cannot wait to not have uh, hurt hands and um, stabbed feet. That spark of joy, though, is real, is infinitely smaller than the joy God the Father has in Jesus and the joy the whole Trinity has in those who have confessed his name, that Jesus truly is the Son of God. So the death of God's Son reveals God's mission in the world to bring glory to himself by bringing a people to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you not only had this mission, in mind, you did everything to complete it. And you will bring it to completion. God, give us faith to believe that. Give us joy as we join in this mission to make disciples, whatever it might be. Reading the Bible one-to-one with a non-Christian. Having family devotions. Evangelizing our, our co-workers and neighbors and family be not afraid to speak up, to say Jesus truly is the Son of God, and because he is, you have hope. God, and I pray that you'd help us apply this truth, this gospel to our lives in every area, in every area of our life. The gospel makes, is making all things new, and I pray that this church would be a place where that is starting. Just everywhere, God. Let us see conversions in this church. Let us see conversions in Corvallis. Let us rejoice when other churches have conversions and baptisms. Oh God, you can do this. We pray that you would use the death of God's son to reveal to us your mission and let us get on board with it. Father, I pray now that as we go out and we will soon forget these things, you would remind us by the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, friends, we are moving into a, a time of...